The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit MorningstarDayton.org. Time of worship this morning. I'm excited about today because today we start a new series called The Mountain. And I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks now. And, and here's basically what it boils down to. I, I don't know if you've ever asked the question of what, what does Jesus think a follower of his should look like? I don't know if you ever asked that question, what does Jesus think? If, if I call myself a Christian, if I call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, what does Jesus think that person should look like? Like what does he think? Does he have an idea about it? I mean, we all have ideas in our own head, right? We, we can sit here and list out like what a Christian should be like. We even have rules for it. And as churches, sometimes we can get really bad about judging people based on our definition of what a follower of Jesus looks like. The problem is, like, even in our church, we have 150 to 170 people. If I was to go around and ask everybody here this morning, okay, what do you think a follower of Jesus looks like? What do you think a follower of Jesus should live like? Like, what do you think their behavior, their, their lifestyle, their, their posture and attitude, what should that be? We would get 150 to 170 different answers. Some of it might overlap, but when we got to the hot button topics, you know the ones where our preferences usually come out instead of us going to scripture on, that's when the fun really starts, when you start diving down into that. But what if we had a way to hear it straight from Jesus? Like what if we had a way to go straight and go, okay, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just hear what Jesus says? I know it's a novel idea to think, why we can just let Jesus define what a follower looks like. And we do. We have a great news is we have it. It's right here. It's always been there in black and white. And maybe for some of you, red and white, if you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red. But it's always there. The problem is, like, we don't always pay attention. Like, over the last 2,000 years, the, the church at times, different churches have said, okay, that's great what Jesus says, but we're going to add some standards to that. Like, Jesus said, we know what Jesus said, but we're going to add some more benchmarks to that. Meanwhile, inside churches, individuals, what we do is we look at it and go, okay, yes, Jesus, it's good Jesus said that, but I'm going to live my way and still call myself a follower. We have churches in the past who have said, okay, yeah, Jesus says this, but we're going to add more to that. We're going to put some different things on you, what you have to do, the do's and don'ts. And then at the same time, people in the churches going, well, I'm going to live my own way and still call myself a follower. Listen to me this morning, both of those are wrong. <laughs> Like trying to add more rules and regulations to it is wrong. And thinking I'm just going to go my own way and still call myself a follower of Jesus, that's wrong too. They're both wrong. Like you can't have both of them going on and say that's a good thing. Adding standards, the church adding standards, what happens is the world looks at it and goes, I can't keep up with that. Like lost people, people who don't, haven't found their relationship with Jesus yet, they look at it when the church adds a bunch of do's and don'ts and they go, I can't, there's no way I can measure up to that. Basically, I would have to change my whole lifestyle before I could ever even come to church or come to Jesus. I can't do that. And the opposite is true for when Christians live our own way and call ourselves a follower. The world looks at us and goes, well, why do I need to keep up? Like, I live just like they live, and they call themselves a follower of Christ. So why would I even need to bother about that? And you see where the danger comes in. So today, this series is not really ultra profound, to be honest with you. It's not going to blow your mind and go, wow, I never heard that before. It's crazy. But really what we're doing is we're just going back to what Jesus said. 
What did Jesus say a follower of him looks like? Why don't we just let Jesus set the standard and don't add to it or take away from it? Great idea, right? So in Matthew chapter 5, is where we're going to be. From Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, we have Jesus is having this dialogue that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Because he was on a mountain. So they just say, hey, it's a sermon on the mountain. And so we're going to call it Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at the next couple of weeks. We're going to break this down and we're calling it the mountain. So for three chapters, five, six, and seven. Now Jesus didn't speak in chapters, okay. But like he's given this dialogue. He's having this conversation. And he lays out more clearly than any other place, this is what a follower of me looks like. This is what a child of the kingdom looks like, acts like. This is what their life resembles. And this event where he's talking on the mountain, this takes place after he's been rejected by his hometown of Nazareth. It also takes place after he's preached in a number of different synagogues. He's even cleansed the temple already once where he goes in and throws over the tables and chases out the money changers. And he's performed a lot of miracles. He has a big following. And so this is where that story picks up. But it's right before what we find in John chapter 6 where Jesus lays out what it's going to cost people to follow him. And in John chapter 6 verse 66 we find that a large number of his followers just left him that day. So it's after all these other things but it's right before that. And what we got to understand is nothing that Jesus ever said or did was in a vacuum. There was always context and purpose behind everything he did. And he was born in Israel, in Bethlehem, and he was born into a very religious nation, but had a very toxic culture. Israel was set apart in the Old Testament to be this light, this beacon for people to find God, to be able to know who God is. But Israel failed over and over again. They turned their back on God. They walked away from him. But now where Jesus is at, the culture, the religious culture of Israel is ruled by this group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are these people that they're more focused on what they look like on the outside than they are about their heart. It's all about what they look like. And they're actually set up as celebrities and powerful people because in their mind, they're the only ones good enough to keep all of God's laws. They're the only ones good enough to keep all of his rules. They're the only ones good enough to get to God. And they had a stranglehold on Israel. And in essence, they had a stranglehold on the rest of the world. You know why? Because they were adding so many rules and do's and don'ts and standards And they were keeping the rest of the world at arm's length from God. Like, you're not good enough to approach God. Only I am. And they had this monopoly on the religion. And here, when we get to Matthew chapter 5, we have these close followers of Jesus and a large crowd. And in that crowd is a group of people that are totally backwards on how to get to God, the Pharisees. And there's also people who are clueless. They don't even know how to start this journey of a relationship with God. And Jesus in this sermon, he's talking about being countercultural. He's talking about attacking a culture of self-righteousness, of self-sufficiency, of religion, and he's hitting it head on. He's like, you have totally missed the point of all of this. And he's preaching repentance. That's a, that's a churchy word. But in chapter 4, what we find is Jesus starts preaching repentance. What that means is turn from your sin and turn towards God. And so, but he's hitting that here and he's trying to change this culture of you've got to change the way you think. You've got to change the way you do things because culture is huge. Culture of our church is big. The culture is what we do and why we do it. And so Jesus unpacks this in Matthew chapter 5. So look in verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when he, was, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, hence the Sermon on the Mount, and after he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. And what we have here, we have, as you read the next few verses, you, you see the same word used at the beginning, blessed. And what we have is we have seven blessed. 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 Okay? Blesseds. There we go. We have seven blesseds where he says, this is how you should be. This is your lifestyle. This is who you need to be as a follower of me. And that word blessed, you got to think of it this way. It's, it's translated happy, but don't think of happiness as like what we think, hey, I'm happy today. I'm sad today. It's happiness in the Lord. It's you're happy in the Lord, which think of it as joy. Joyful, fulfilled is the person, okay? So when we read that word blessed, that's what we're saying. But he has these different blessed, and he's, basically their attributes or qualities of what a follower of Jesus should have. From Jesus. <laughs> like he says it. It's not from me. It's not some cultural tradition. It's straight from Jesus. And then he gives a byproduct of every attribute. And the last two of the blessed are what we can expect after we live this way. All right, so let's dive in. The first one, look at this, in verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed is the poor in spirit. If you were to summarize this whole next three chapters, that verse does it. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Like the whole thing would wrap up in that one verse. And Jesus is not talking about physical poverty. Blessed are the poor people. That's not what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about a poverty of spirit that stands in contrast to self-sufficiency. And I love this word poor. The Greek word, if you were to say in Greek the word, you're going to call somebody poor, it would be the word penes. Penes. Just means poor. But that's not the word they use here. The Greek word used here is tokas. Tokas, and he's like, okay, well, what's the big deal? Like, why wouldn't he just use the word poor? We believe that every word is inspired by God in our Bible. And God uses words for a reason. God uses every word for a purpose. And so he says, look, they don't use the word panace. They use the word tokas. The person who is panace poor is so poor they have to earn their daily food by working that day. Think of it as paycheck to paycheck living. Some of you are like, I can totally relate to that, right? It's like you go to work, you earn enough that day to live that day. The next day you get up, you go to work, you earn enough money to live that day. Like you earn enough money to buy your food for that day. That's, that is panace poor. The person who is tokas poor is so poor that they only stay alive by begging. The word that is used here is tokas which is the poor referring to that you are so poor that you only stay alive by begging, which means you have nothing, we are nothing, we own nothing, we are in ourselves empty, void, we have absolutely nothing. And Jesus says, blessed are the tokas in spirit. What are you saying? What I'm saying is we gotta stop thinking about ourselves a lot. We gotta stop thinking of ourselves as highly as we think because we have nothing, we are nothing. Matthew specifically uses the word tokas. Panes has nothing fancy. Tokas has nothing at all. And Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit. It's a spiritual poverty that's so thick you can feel it. You're like, I have absolutely nothing in and of myself. And this is a hard concept for us to grasp, this idea of tokas in our culture. 
especially in our Western culture here in America, because we are so blessed. It's hard for us to wrap our mind about what kind of poverty that must be to understand that we have nothing, absolutely nothing in ourselves. Especially in this area. I mean, we, this area is so blessed. This area with so many different uh, uh, affluent people and people who have a lot of stuff and are blessed beyond measure. And that's before you start thinking the pastor is bashing the wealthy, that's not what's happening. But what happens is our physical wealth and our comfort and our possessions blind us, blinds us to the poorness of spirit that Jesus is talking about. What happens is Satan gets in and the, having things is not wrong. Having money is not wrong. But what happens is the devil, our enemy, gets in and he blinds us with our stuff to our need really to be tokas. To understand that we have nothing and so we start getting things. We start accumulating wealth and money and possessions and we forget that in our essence we have nothing. It means nothing. And it's such a huge deal because Jesus says blessed is the poor in spirit. And it's that we see ourselves as poor and so needy that all of our sufficiency rests in him. And then he finishes it by saying blessed is the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is at the moment of salvation, this is the only response that is effective in a saving faith. Because if we don't realize the depth of our spiritual poverty, if we don't realize the darkness of our sin, the total hopelessness and helplessness that we live in, there's no way we would ever really feel the need to be rescued. There's no way we would ever feel the need to be forgiven. There's no way we would ever feel the need to see someone give us hope because we have it all taken care of. So Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit. And then after salvation, church, this is the only posture that we should come before God with. God, I am nothing and I have nothing apart from you. It's all about you. We're talking about what Jesus says a follower of him should look like. And some of it is gonna be painful. Some of us is gonna be like looking in a mirror this morning as we look at this week what it means to really follow Jesus. The second thing he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Okay, so this doesn't mean that we go around bawling our eyes out and crying and wailing uncontrollably about our life. That's not what he's saying, okay? That's not what he means when he says mourn. Jesus is talking about a totally different kind of mourning. It's not sorrow we feel because somebody's hurt our feelings or sorrow we feel because things aren't going our way or because we've lost a loved one. It's not that kind of mourning. This is a mourning over our sin. This is a sorrow. We call it a godly sorrow. And when Jesus is talking, the Pharisees would be sitting there and they would be listening and be like, we don't have any sin we need to feel sorry about because outwardly we're perfect. <laughs> we don't mess up. That's everybody else messes up. That's not us. The ordinary person listening that day as Jesus was talking on the mountain would not have even been able to grasp the depth at which their sin was keeping them from God. But this is the attitude or the character of a true follower of Christ, that we're never perfect. In this side of heaven, we won't ever be perfect, but that when we do sin, we can confess our sin. And he says he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, what Jesus is talking about here is as a true follower of Christ, we mourn over our sin. We feel sorrow over the brokenness that we have. It bothers us and we're not okay with it. 
Some of us, we come in, we're like, well, I, I, I know I'm messing up over here, but I'm okay, it doesn't really bother me. You might wanna check to make sure that you're a true follower of Christ because Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Does it bother you when you fall? And guess what? I fall every day. I fall. There are sin that is in my life, and I hate that it's there. It digs on me. I'm just like, man, I just, I wish it wasn't there. And I hate the fact that I sin against God. And Jesus is talking about that. It's, we, we hate that, that we sin. We hate the sin in ourselves even more than we hate the sin in other people. We hate the fact that we fall we, because we know what our sin cost our Savior. And we understand our, here, here's the deal, when we understand our poorness in spirit, and then apart from God, we have nothing, it bothers us to know when we've sinned against the very one who's given us life. Did you catch that? There's a progression in this, in this talk that Jesus is having. He said, blessed is the poor in spirit when you know that you have nothing apart from God. Then he goes, blessed are those that mourn. Why? Because when we know apart from God we have nothing, it should bother us that we sin against the one who's given us everything. We shouldn't be okay with that. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. What does he mean by they will be comforted? We're partly comforted now because we know that God loves us. And he forgives our sins. And when he does, the Bible says he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, which means he doesn't remember them ever again. And when God looks at us as a child, as a follower of Christ, he doesn't see that. But the amazing comfort is the comfort that's going to come. It's the comfort that we're going to have one day when we spend eternity in heaven, when this old world is gone and our old sin nature is gone, and now we get to spend eternity in God knowing once and for all that sin has been defeated and we don't have to be in the presence of it anymore. See, at the moment of salvation, we're set free from the power of sin, but as long as we're alive on this earth, we always got the presence of sin. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are bothered by their sin because they will be comforted. They're comforted now to know that Jesus forgives, but we're going to be comforted one day in heaven, knowing that now it's all gone and we're never going to have to worry about falling ever again. Look in verse 5. Then he says, blessed are the, the gentle. Your, your translation might say humble, might say meek, but it says because they will inherit the earth. Okay, so that verse is probably one of the most misquoted, taken out of context verses other than the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all right? This is up there in like the top two, okay? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I, I just, it kills me when I hear people try to, to, to talk about this verse and they, listen, here's the deal. The word meek does not mean weak. Okay, so if you have your Bible, you want to write notes, you want to write in the margin right now. Meek does not mean weak. It's not this idea that as Christians we go through life frail and hunched over and, and, and fearful of everything that's happening and, and backing away from everything. That's not what that verse means. Nor does it mean that the meek will get, inherit everything in this world. That's not what Jesus is saying. Hey, if you're meek, you're going to get everything you ever want in this world. That's not what it says. So what does it mean? The translation of that word means humble. It means humble. It's an attitude or character of our spirit where we accept God's dealing with us as good without disputing or resisting him. 
It's, the only, it's, the, it's only the humble heart which is also meek and does not fight against God. Here's what that means. Blessed are those who submit to God's authority without fighting back. Parents, it's kind of like what you want your kids to do when you tell them to do something. Like, go clean your room. What you want is, is them to say, okay, in our house it's yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, because it's a southern thing. But you want them to say, okay, and go do it, right? But what do we get? When we tell them to do something, what do we get? We get the eye roll. We get the grumbling. We get the sigh, you know, the sigh. We get the explanation of how they didn't make the mess. It's not their fault or how they're always picking it up. We get the explanation of this isn't fair. We get the, okay, I'll do it, but they go do everything else but that, okay? So when we look at this word meek, next time you read through that verse, I want you to understand that God wants this posture from his followers to say, hey, when I work and deal in your life, don't fight me on it. (laughs) Don't eye roll me. Don't sigh at me. Don't be like, well, God, you're not provoking. You're not convicting anybody else. Why are you working on me like that? Why do I got to go to church? Why do I got to give? God's like, just let me work in your life without resisting it. And next time you, listen, next time you see your kids respond that way to you, parents, imagine that's what God is seeing when we respond to him that way too. And if it drives you nuts, imagine how it makes God feel. All right? It's responding to God and submitting to his authority. And there's a progression here still. Get this. When we realize we have nothing apart from God, and because of that it bothers us when we sin against the one who gave us life. So what happens is we want to grow and avoid those moments. So we approach God with meekness and humbleness, and we don't bristle and fight against everything he's trying to do in our lives. Jesus is walking these guys through what it looks like to follow him, starting with understanding you have nothing. Right? And understanding that you need to mourn and be bothered by your sin. And so there's an answer for that. And that's to grow closer to me, which means submit to me and let me work in your life. So the promise here is that the meek will inherit the earth. It means, not doesn't mean that you're going to, again, inherit everything in this earth. It means you're going to inherit the kingdom. So what is Jesus saying? I want you to think of it this way. The opposite of meekness or humbleness is pride. It's pride. And the Bible says on more than one occasion, God hates pride. It says he hates a proud look. And the New Testament says he resists the proud. It does not mean God hates the proud person. God hates pride. You know why God hates pride? Because pride keeps people out of heaven. God hates pride because pride keeps people out of heaven. Not that a proud person can't get saved. That's not what keeps them out of heaven. What happens is a proud person believes they have it all under control. They don't need God. They don't care if their sin separates them and keeps them isolated from eternity with God. And therefore, they never submit to God. That's why God hates pride. So Jesus says, blessed is the humble Blessed is those that submit and don't fight back. Blessed are those who let me work in their life. And the funny thing about humbleness and meekness is when we find ourselves in a state of humbleness with God, it spills over to our relationship with other people. We become humble to other people. It's easier to submit one to another, like Paul says in the New Testament. Submit one to another. A person who usually is prideful to one another 
It's usually a person who's prideful towards God because it spills over. The next thing Jesus says is this. Look in verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. You know what this has to do with? This is talking about craving. What do you crave? What, do you, what, do you, what drives you? Notice Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who eat and drink righteousness. <laughs> blessed are those who consume and eat and drink righteousness. Why? You know why? Because anybody can come to church and drink in a sermon. Anybody can come to church and take in some worship. That doesn't take much of us. And like we can just mark it off our to-do list. This is where it gets difficult because it's about what do you crave, what drives you. Do you long for the things of God? Are you hungry for the things of God? Do you hunger and crave after the Bible? Do you, do, do you long for spending time with God? How many things occupy this area of your life? For some of us, it's our kids. We want our kids to be successful, and so we just give, and we give, and we do, and we do, and we take them here, and we take them there. And this occupies the space that Jesus says should be reserved for him to crave and to hunger after. For some of us, it's our spouses. For some of us, it's our work and, and, and the next promotion or the next, the next level up or more money or more savings or more things. And it takes place of where Jesus should be sitting on the throne and we should be craving and hungering after him. But our appetite has been misplaced. I saw a quote this week that said this, some of your marriages are so messed up because there's only one throne in your heart and both of you are fighting to see who gets to sit on it. And that's true because we're so hungry for other things other than letting Jesus fill that in our life. And Jesus says the promise here is that those who do this are going to be filled. It means you're going to be satisfied. If we know we're poor and we're only seeking God who sustains and gives life and we submit ourselves to him and we crave and hunger for his righteousness, then we'll be satisfied. Some of you this morning, you're in here this morning and you're lacking it's like fulfillment and satisfaction are just always out of your reach. Like there's something missing. And it could be that you're consuming and chasing after and your appetite is after the wrong things. Because Jesus says the only people who are filled, satisfied, fulfilled are who? The people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So maybe it's because you're craving the wrong things. Look at the next thing he says in verse 7. He said, blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. So up until now, Jesus has been focusing on how we look at ourselves and our relationship with God. And this one he turns to our relationship with other people. He said, blessed are those who show mercy for they will receive mercy. People by nature, this might shock you, but by nature, we are selfish and not merciful, okay? <laughs> by nature, that's how we're born. We're sinners, we're broken, but God is merciful. And this word mercy takes, it's a dual meaning, okay? So bear with me for just a moment because here's the deal. One is the idea that we don't react harshly or inflict punishment or judgment even when it's justified. This is the type of mercy that God has shown me and you. The fact that we are broken and we've sinned against him, the one who has given us everything, and what he has the right to do is judge us immediately, take us out, but he doesn't. He withholds it. That's mercy. 
And so what it's saying is we're called to show mercy to those who have wronged us because, listen, remember the first thing. We have nothing. We are nothing apart from God. And so who are we to demand punishment for someone who has wronged us when in our essence we are nothing? And the other idea associated with mercy is not just withholding judgment, but it's this. It's the idea of loving, care, and concern for the needs of others. Jesus is teaching that true righteousness and a true follower of his will produce a loving response to the needs of others. So these are two different kind of definitions, but they work hand in hand like this. Blessed are those who show mercy. So in my life as a follower, I need to be looking for needs in other people and jumping on the chance to fill that need, to show love, compassion, and concern for them. And as I'm doing that, naturally, because we live in a fallen, broken world, somebody's going to hurt me. Somebody's going to hurt my feelings. Somebody's going to say something about me. Somebody's going to stab me in the back. Somebody's going to walk away from me. Somebody's going to do something mean to me. Somebody's going to damage or harm me in some way. And as I'm showing love and compassion to others and meeting their needs and something like that happens, what it means is I go, you know what? Not a big deal. I'm going to drop it. I'm going to show mercy. I'm not going to demand judgment because I'm too busy showing love, compassion, and concern for other people. And as I can keep going through life, something else is going to happen. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to cause pain. And it's going to create a wound in my life. But what I do is I want to show mercy. And so I'm going to say, you know what? It's okay. I'm going to drop it because I've got too much mercy and love and compassion to show over here. I don't have time for that. And we've all been shown mercy. The true follower of Jesus, because we've been forgiven much, we will forgive much. And because we've been loved much, we will love much. It's a great definition of mercy. Because we've been forgiven much, we will forgive much. And because we've been loved much, we will love much. She says, blessed are those who show mercy, for they will receive mercy. The next thing, look in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed the pure in heart. He's not talking about a physical cleanness that the Pharisees were so concerned about, they were so wrapped up in. He was going straight to the heart, to the motives, the thoughts, the innermost part of who we are. And the standard for this purity is not what standards we can put on that, but the standard of what God sets. And he actually unpacks that later, and we'll talk about that in a different week. So Jesus, by saying this verse, he's, he's answering the question that everybody's asking in that crowd that day. How do I get to heaven? How do I see God? And Jesus answers by saying, only the righteous. That's it. Only the righteous. But the problem is we can't be righteous on our own. We'll never measure up. So only those who have received the righteousness of Christ will see God. We can only receive the righteousness of Christ when we realize we have nothing apart from God. Our sin is what keeps us separated from him. By repenting of our sins and mourning for our sins and submitting to God and giving our lives to Jesus. You see how Jesus is walking through what salvation looks like? I have nothing. I'm broken because of my sin. I am repenting and sorrowful because of my sin. And because I see that in myself, I am submitting to God and his work in my life. And now I'm going to pursue his righteousness. The Pharisees wanted everybody to follow a standard and conform to their traditions. But I want you to get this. Jesus demands transformation and new life. The Pharisees demanded conformity to their standard. The Pharisees said, you will conform to our standard. Jesus said, no, no, no. 
You need transformed into a new life that only I can give you. It's not doing more. It's being made new. And the last thing is this. Look in verse 9. He said, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God. This is another verse that gets misquoted and it breaks my heart. A lot of times this gets misquoted in law enforcement ceremonies. Because law police officers, I've been to not, when I was a police officer, I went to a lot of them, and back in the day they were called peace officers. And so sometimes they'll bring up this verse and say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And they make it sound like as a, if you're a peacemaker, if you're a law enforcement officer or a, a military person, you'll get to go to heaven. And that's not what this verse says. In fact, this verse is not talking about making peace between people, like you're breaking up a fight. That's not what it's saying. Peacemakers are they themselves at peace with God and they bring a message of peace so others can be brought to peace with God. You remember the announcement the, the angels made to the shepherds that night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They said peace on earth. Did not mean that all the wars were gonna stop on the earth at that time. They're talking about that God was bringing peace to mankind because believe it or not, when we're lost and separated from God, we're at war with God. We're at war with him. And God, through his son, brings peace. And so he's talking about being a peacemaker because those who come to peace with God naturally will become the messengers of God's peace. So what does this mean? He, he's kind of wrapping this part up. Well, this is kind of like a benchmark in your walk with Christ, on your journey with him. The moment you move from being a consumer to being a producer, bear with me. Give me just a moment. I want to walk through it. Because you know you have nothing apart from God. And because of that, your sin bothers you. And so you work on growing more and more like Christ by submitting to God's working in your life. And you crave more and more of him every day, more than anything else. And you start focusing on others instead of yourself. And you become an agent of mercy. And you don't worry about what the outside looks like, but only what God is doing on the inside. And it's bringing more and more fulfillment and joy every day. And because of all that, what Jesus just talked about, the natural outworking of that is you can't help but sharing your faith. You can't help but spreading the good news of this amazing message so others can go on this journey with you. If you're here this morning and you're at peace with God because you have a relationship with Jesus, why are you not sharing that with others? We're looking through here, Jesus, like this is what a follower of me looks like. I mean, you talk about an opener to a sermon. That was his introduction. <laughs> Not mine, I'm done. That was his introduction. He had to get that out of the way. He had to say, look, I want you to know what it really means to say you follow me. And it's big. It's more than just going to church and it's more than being a good person. It's more than being a good father or husband. Listen, you gotta know you have nothing. Your sin has broken you and you're separated from God and you mourn over that. And you don't fight against God when he reaches out and grabs a hold of your heart and tries to draw you in and continues to work in your life. And you pursue righteousness. You crave and you hunger for the things of God. And you share what God has done in your life with everyone around you. And look what your reward is for this. Check this out, verse 10. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Verse 11, blessed are you when they insult you and they persecute you. They falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
people are going to misunderstand. People are going to make stuff up about you. People are going to mistreat you and turn their backs on you. But get this. If you live like Jesus, people are going to take notice. It's going to be evident. There's going to be a different reactions to it. Listen, but if you're living your life in spiritual neutral, there's no wonder there's no difficulties. There's no wonder there's no hardships because you're not doing anything to create that. You're not talking about it. You're not, you're not engaging this world with the gospel. It's no wonder there's no pushback in your life. There's no difficulties when it comes to your faith. But there's also probably no satisfaction and fulfillment either. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. So what about you? What about me? Where do we fall? Where are you at on this spectrum of what Jesus was laying out, what he wants his followers to look like? And the, the, the truth of the matter is we all struggle with one or more of those. I struggle daily with some of those. Some days I'm not the greatest peacemaker. I'm not about sharing my faith. Some days, man, I'm just on fire with it. Some days I try to play with my sin and try to play it off like it's no big deal. Some days I'm so broken I just can't even stand it. And here's the deal. I'm on this journey with you. We're on this journey together. But as a church, let's not add to what it means to follow Christ. And as individuals in this church, let's not decide and pick and choose what we want to live like and how we want to be. Let's follow what Jesus said. What's the standard that he set? Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. Sums up the whole thing. I have nothing and I am nothing apart from the one who saved me. And if there was nothing else to that sermon, what a powerful sermon he would have spoken just with that. But where are you? Church, may I have you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing, we're going we're gonna to worship, we're going we're gonna to have a chance in a moment where we just kind of reflect on what God has done today. What has God impacted you with today? What, what is it out of this? Now, there's a lot there, man. There were seven things there that we flew through. Maybe you're here, maybe you don't really understand the depth of your poverty, that you have nothing without Christ and you kind of are living this self-sufficient life. You got it all under control. Maybe this morning you're the one that you're kind of bristling with what God's doing. He's moving in your heart. Maybe he's moving your heart to be more involved and to serve here at the church or to go on the missions trip or to give somebody so somebody can go on the missions trip. Or he's dealing with your heart in some way, but you're like, ah, eye rolling and sighing and pushback. Maybe today your hunger and your thirst and your desires are totally off base with what God has for you. because you become distracted of all these other things and that's taken the place of Christ off the throne of your heart. Maybe for some of us, we need to be reminded that we are peacemakers because we have the message of peace that God is offering through his son, Jesus, and it's time we do something about it. Do you ever look around at the people around you and understand that they're at war with God. 
There's conflict in their heart. There's struggle with who they are. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know the answer to it. But guess who does? You and me. Some people are on this journey to try to find God and they don't even know they're on this journey to find God. They don't know what's going on, but we can help guide them into this saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But we gotta understand we've got nothing. And when we understand the depths of our sin and what drove him to the cross, that changes who we are and how we live. So church, what has God done in your heart this morning? Here in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna stand and worship. Listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you this morning. However God has dealt with your heart this morning, respond to him. Don't respond to me, respond to God. Answer him, don't ignore him, don't give him the cold shoulder, don't hope he just goes away. There's a reason there's a tugging in your heart right now because God is trying to work and he's trying to, he's trying to build into you and create you to be this awesome, amazing peacemaker. Don't fight against him. And so for you, maybe that looks like you come down here and you kneel down here at the altar and you pray, or maybe it means you just grab the hand of your spouse or your children where you're at and pray and say, let's live like Jesus. Let's just do it his way. Let's stop adding to it. Let's stop taking away from it. Let's just be who he wants us to be. However God's moved in your heart, I'll be down. I would love to talk with you. Maybe here this morning you've never met Jesus and you're like, man, I need to know him. I would love to introduce you to the Savior. However God's dealt with you this morning, don't waste this moment. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you again for your word, how powerful it is. And not because anything to do with me, but because you are so straightforward and you made it so clear to us that nobody here this morning can leave through these doors and go, I don't know how Jesus wants me to live. But God, we've got to, we've got to be the ones to take it and allow you to work in our life and submit to you. God, do your work in the hearts of your people this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me and worship this morning? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit morningstardayton.org and choose Contact Us.